Sonic Statesman.com. Hello and welcome to Sonic Talk. We're mixing it up a little bit this week. Uh, we had a bit of a last-minute change of events. For some reason, the uh, the planets have conspired to take everybody away on other business uh, individually uh, this week, so we didn't have a panel. So what we're going to do is we're going to have a chat with John Van Eaton. John Van Eaton has been on the road for almost 20 years with massive bands such as Nine Inch Nails, Front 242, Guns N' Roses, Linkin Park, etc., etc. He's the guy who kind of runs the tech stuff uh his primary function has been um running back lines such as drums bass guitar rigs but mainly keyboard rigs and uh, more importantly recently pro tools rigs for um, nine inch nails um we hooked up with him via uh an email he just sent us because while he was on the road he was listening to uh sonic talk and it he said it um it brightened up his day that was when he was on the road with nine inch nails and mostly nine inch nails are massive so i thought it'd be interesting to uh have a chat with him um I'd just like to point out, it was very last minute, and there is a little bit of distortion on uh, on my voice and his voice, because we were using a slightly different method of communication than we normally do, so I apologise for that in advance. But uh, I hope you enjoy this rare treat of an interview with John Van Eaton. So, um, here I am, I'm talking to John Van Eaton, who is uh, a man of much experience in the touring and studio and everything kind of business. How are you doing, John? I'm doing quite all right today, sir. Excellent, and and uh, is uh, I guess it's kind of still relatively early in the morning with with you. You weren't up late night doing any kind of big studio gigs or or anything. Oh, actually, I was up a little bit late uh, watching a movie because I like to watch a lot of obscure movies for obscure soundtrack ideas and for a lot of input. I like visual input to learn about the world around me to think about things to write about. But I was still up at 7.30 for some breakfast and a bike ride across the river and met up with a friend for some coffee to discuss printing out some business cards for a little bit of uh, uh, barter system here in my local neighborhood. Oh, cool. So, I mean, you've you've been everywhere. I mean, I'm looking at your resume now, and it's it's just kind of a bit terrifying, really. I don't know how you managed to cram it all in. Well, I, I, I crammed it into 20 years. It's a, a veritable lifetime. And in fact, I have not been to Alaska nor uh, uh, Antarctica. I mean, well, how would you describe your role when you're on the road? Because I'm, I'm looking here, you've got Pro Tools tech and various kind of keyboard techs and drum tech. Is that your role on the road? Well, yes, I, I suppose it depends on what a band needs. Um, is it when I first got hired to work for Nine Inch Nails in 1994, they said, well, what will you be doing? I said, well, everything. Because I had been a one-man band at the advent of MIDI, and uh, I started playing out locally here in the Midwest in 85, 86, 87 with an AX80, a DX7, a CZ101, yeah. and a, an RX15. And I didn't trust computers yet, so I used an MC500 from Roland to do my sequencing on Old school. Oh, I mean, this was 85. I was doing shows in 85. It was pretty old school. I thought I was doing pretty good. And I think I had, I did a guitar through a small Marshall amp, and uh, that was the extent. I had a pretty small one-man band rig. A lot of the bands in this area liked me to open up for them because I got my stuff out of their way for them to go on. I, I read a lot of keyboard magazines for years and years, and I tried to buy the smartest things I could. Of course, I really would have liked to have an OB-8 at that time, or, or an Expander, or a Matrix 12, but it was all I could do to 
afford to get a DX7 and yeah, AX80 yeah, sure. and a CZ and a CZ101 blew my mind. It was four-way multi-timbral. I was trying to be educated in my gear purchases turned into they wanted me working at the keyboard store because I knew what I was talking about. The clients at the keyboard store really thought I knew what I was talking about. And the next thing you know, some of those clients wanted me to be taking care of their keyboard rig in Japan in, you know, in a week. And so I stumbled from my music into the retail world, into being a technician. And frankly, my music took a hit. Yeah, I've, of I've, I've been so busy um, for so many years. I pretty much uh, went on the road for the first time about 89. And I've never had more than, I've never had more than a couple months off since then. Wow. This has been my largest break here of about six months. And it's been, I had one 10-month break in uh, 99, 2000. And uh, this is my six-month break in uh, 2007, 2008. That's the most time I've ever had. Well, it sounds like you're about due some time off to me. Oh, yeah. It's about time to use my, like, my uh, poly evolver. It's time to see if I can get my emulator 2 to work again. It's time to use my... Uh, uh, my mo my mono machine. Ah, yeah, now that does take some getting used to. How are you getting on with the mono machine? That's the Electron uh, Swedish. That takes a lot of getting used to. It's a lot easier to make the. It's a lot easier to start working with the uh, Poly Evolver. Yeah, it's a little more traditional. The mono machine is kind of interesting because of all those separate it's, machines, isn't it? Oh yeah, I've started playing with it, and I started reading the manual. I need to play with it while I'm reading the manual because it's pretty <laughs> heavy. Oh, and I've really enjoyed. Uh, was that on Sonic State? Uh, the the guy that spent four episodes dealing with the twenty six hundred. Uh, well, it's uh, Mark Doty. Um, yeah, he's yeah. Uh, we, he's on YouTube, but he's been we've just been picking his stuff up and, and putting it there. It's good. He's oh, very good. I've really been getting back into my twenty six hundred and really enjoying it and really making monster sounds out of it. I have an or I have a black and orange one. I'd really love to have a gray one, but I have a black and orange one, and I've been able to. I've been putting it through its paces now, understanding it better. Oh, that's really cool. I mean, so is it fair to say that you have a fairly enormous collection of, uh, of synthesizers and, and technology? I have an insanely large collection of synthesizers. In um, fact, you don't even want to know. <laughs> do, you fact, keep, something... do you keep them all close by, or are they all dotted around the place? Uh, well... Let's see. In 1998, I moved all my stuff into storage in California, thinking I was making an L.A. move. And I let a lot of people borrow my stuff in producing stuff in L.A. Uh, about, 90, about 2003, it's like I'm not going to really stay in L.A. And I got that stuff back. And it's been in storage in Kentucky for five years after being in storage in L.A. for about for a long time and I'm just starting to get stuff out of storage and um, starting to get my building more secure yeah and and uh, I've got some stuff that people just don't even know about like I'm not even going to talk about that right there and <laughs> okay. I do have I do have the uh, one of the Sherman quad modular filters oh yeah they're very that cool look, that I'm looking at starting to play with um, I'm really delighted that I recently got a hold of a a Lexicon 300L, so I can actually put a Lark controller in the middle of my Mackie consoles and look like a mixed magazine in 1986. Oh, beautiful. 
<laughs> what was that preset on the uh, on on the lexicon there? What was it? Something beans, wasn't there? There was beans in it. I don't know. I need to even turn it on. I've just got. I've been buying gear. I go straight into storage, and it's about time for me to use some stuff. So when you, I mean, because you're on the road a whole bunch. I mean, explain to me how kind of buying gear works when you're on the road. I mean, presumably, does stuff kind of gravitate towards you, or do you just um, kind of get time out to go and check out the local stores? Well, I'll tell you, the, the touring schedule is becoming a lot more rigorous, and there's a little bit less time off these days, and it's a little bit less fun. But there was, well, when I used to work in retail, it was in the 80s, and that's when everybody was losing everything, everything sequential and everything Oberheim for 200 bucks. Well, I picked up all those sequential and Oberheim machines for 200 bucks before anybody thought that was a cool thing to do. I got my 2600 for... 400 bucks before everybody was back after him again. Yeah, you, you want to stop that. Someone, someone, will get, someone will get real jealous. Well, I can make it worse. <laughs> yeah, okay. I got my TB303 for $15, and at the time I could have bought three more of them for $15 a piece. Oh, well, at least you missed out something. <laughs> well, you see, uh, but I've spent a lifetime of collecting this. It's, I didn't start just when eBay started. I started in 86. And I've just, um, and I've had the chance, I've had the chance on days off and, and all kinds of tours to be checking the guitar centers and check the local music stores and check the pawn shops. And yeah, I must have, I have, a, I have about, about a, I have about a hundred cents and I have about a hundred drum machines. Lordy, I so can't just, imagine what your repair bill's like. Uh, well... I've got a soldering iron. <laughs> uh, and some knowledge. So, John, tell me a little bit about kind of, you know, because you, you've been on the road a whole bunch, and, you know, obviously Nine Inch Nails are one of the big touring acts. You know, they've been kind of, you've been working with them for a long time. How does that kind of, what's the procedure? How does it work? You know, can you take us through a little bit, sort of, you start in production rehearsals, and then what happens? What happens? Oh, yeah. Before, what's, the pre, what's the preparation kind of aspect like? Oh, I know. I forgot to mention, as I was the one-man band, and as I was handling all, all elements of my production, when I started being a tech for like Front 242 or Midnight Star, I'd be doing all the keyboards, the drums, the electronic drums, tuning guitars, like everything. No because wonder you got I so was, much work. <laughs> I was well-versed in everything. You could hire me and I'd be the one backline tech. When Nine Inch Nails hired me, I was like, well, I'll take care of everything because that's what I do for everybody else. And they were like, no, no, no. We just need you to focus on the... <laughs> on the drums and the uh, and some other certain machines. Well, what happens? Yeah, I'll tell you. It's the same thing that happens for oh Nine Inch Nails for Lincoln Park for Guns and Roses. They'll find their people. You know, you get a um, you work a couple tours and some production managers like your work ethic, and um, they share names. And there's only so many people that do this. They'll fly people out to L.A. and um, a lot of people rehearse downtown or usually in Burbank. And we'll start, you know, Nine Inch Nails band members change often. New members need to learn the songs. We need to work through stuff. We need to get people up to play, uh, up to playing the songs. We spend time with just the text and just the band, and then maybe they start developing the light concept in the other room. And then maybe we move the band into the larger production room after the band has been rehearsing for a month. Then maybe they work with the full uh, PA and the full front of house guy and the full lighting rig for a month. 
And one of the things I noticed uh, in your talk about the the uh, the new amazing DigiDesign consoles, one thing that um, that didn't get mentioned, which was an awesome thing to happen for Nine Inch Nails, we have already noted that you can record the band playing to a um, to a session on a venue console. Sure. And this time I'll, I'm also sending out a simpty control for every song so that the lights can be in perfectly synced yeah, and okay. offset. Well, so this became totally brilliant when Trent was able to send the entire band home and listen to them play all night and still, and still have the light show triggered from the live recording of the band and the synthy track. Okay, so he could really get a handle on what was going on. So he could, he, could, he could sit all night and go through it with the lighting director and, not, and let everybody else go about their business. And he is an amazingly talented, amazing genius, amazing, keeps his hands on everything, and is super in control. And, I mean, in a good way. He's got a vision for what he wants to look like it, so he doesn't need to sleep because he's going to spend every waking minute worrying about the record, worrying about playing, getting his voice in shape, and, and staying up all night with the lighting guy to make sure that it's what he wants the audience to see. Right. Well, he's, he's kind of like a, an icon, isn't he? Is it for sort of independent, sort of uh, the independent route through this sort of mess of music business that, that it seems to have become? Think about the icon. Think about the whole new thing that he just did. He blew my mind. He just released Ghosts 1 through 4, uh, simply announced it one night, that, hey, I've got 36 songs. You can download the first nine of them for free. You can pay me $5 and download all 36. You can pay me $10 and I'll send you two CDs. You can, be, you can pay me 75 and I'll give you all the multi-track data in a Blu-ray DVD at a higher resolution. Sure. I will sign and number them for $300. And in a week, with, when he was severed from his recording contract with Interscope, within a week of releasing, on his website alone, he grossed one point six million dollars. That's and that's impressive. Moved, moved about eight hundred and some thousand pieces of product off of his website and Amazon. That's amazing. That is pretty incredible. Think about it. This gentleman we're talking about has a twenty-year-plus fan base. Yeah, I and guess. rabid fans and massive traffic on his website. So. It's not like me as a beginning band. I mean, I'm up to a whole. I'm up to only about fifteen hundred hits on my MySpace page. Sure. It's not like I can put something out and have a hundred thousand people listen to it. No, right, of course. But twenty years worth of, you know, he put it out his first record in what eighty nine, ninety one, something like that. That's a long standing history history of rabid fans. Yeah, and the, and the young kids still get it, and people that are forty still show up. You know? Maybe one day we'll get that with the podcast, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Sonic Talk. Sponsored by Yamaha Music Production. Producers of the world's most popular digital mixing consoles. Accurate professional studio monitoring systems. Incredibly realistic and portable digital stage pianos. The versatile motif range of music production synthesizers. And the latest N-series digital mixing studios. Featuring the cleanest signal pump and full Cubase AI4 integration. 
www.yamahasynth.com Sonic Talk. That was an ad there for Yamaha Synth. Um, they've very kindly sponsored the podcast for quite some time now, so uh, we can thank you for their continued support. So if you want to go and register your support for them, supporting us, go visit yamahasynth.com. So um, I noticed you got Guns N' Roses in there, and you mentioned that as well. That must have been our kind of whole bunch of fun. 2002, that must have been... Um, not quite when it was really at its peak, but still doing pretty big stadium kind of gigs, I would think. Oh, uh, well, yeah, pretty much. You know, I started off in clubs with the Lords of Acid and Front 242, KMFDM. A lot of tours with KMFDM and the Lords of Acid and Front 242, some of my favorite people in the business. Um, but uh, Nine Inch Nails, Linkin Park, uh, Guns N' Roses stuff, pretty much always been arenas. Guns N' Roses can still pack them in, although with oh, sure. almost no uh, no original members. That l- life living in, in this sort of hugely amplified environment is kind of strangely weird because obviously, you know, every day you're, get, you're putting out all of this stuff to sort of tens of thousands of people who you're playing to. Well, you know what's weird to me? Mm. To be at home. Because, well, of course. Because all I know is loading that keyboard rig, loading that Pro Tools rig onto stage, getting it back in a truck, and yeah... Uh, letting about five to 10,000 people hear that and get back on the bus. And you see, and the keyboard collection has stayed in storage forever, so I've been mad about getting everything from native instruments and reason and little inboxes to have on the tour bus. I've got almost everything from our friend uh, at GeForce. Uh-huh. I, when I first heard of the, of the Mtron, I was blown away, blown away. Um, I just didn't know anybody was making anything like that. So, I mean, going back to the live stuff, how, I mean, because obviously you've been touring for quite some time. How do you find that the the technology has changed? Because obviously when you initially started, you know, you were dealing with MIDI rigs and kind of semi-analog stuff and things that could go wrong, you know, and needed to be fixed. Mm-hmm. How has that changed now that you're dealing with much more complex technological setups? I mean, is is the work less, but the pressure more? Or, you know, how does that kind of translate, do you think? It's interesting. I guess you could say there used to be more physical work. You know, when you had to, had to take a Midas console out of the box, you needed eight people there. Sure. You take a DigiDesign console out of the box, you can do it with about two people. Um, you know, just thinking of the automation that everybody has to use the plugins on the stage in the monitor rig and at the front of house that were used on the record. How could you imagine doing something like that 10 years ago, 20 years ago? Yeah. Uh, there's just so much has changed. Now I've only, and then uh, in about three years with those venue consoles, I've only seen about two crashes. That's pretty good. Is there more, is the pressure greater because there's so much say, there's so much reliance on this stuff? I would say yes. And things do go wrong with machines, and impeccably built rigs still have parts jiggle apart in a truck. Sure. And things do go wrong. They don't go wrong on purpose. Do you find that you're having to build more and more redundancy into these kind of rigs as you set them up, or do you find that they're reliable enough to not have to, you know, make a duplicate or have a fail a failover in case one thing breaks? We used to just just do one rig, and pretty much since the onset of nails, the artist demands have been we need to have an entire backup rig, uh, instantly switchable. Uh, that, the Lincoln Park situation was different because we needed two rigs 
and then we needed to be able to piggy to leapfrog two other rigs when they were opening up for Metallica. It's like there were two different productions, two different stages. So I had to have four different rigs. So I had two on the blue stage and two on the black stage. I built a lot of Pro Tools rigs. Wow. <laughs> how do you mount this stuff so that it doesn't it doesn't fall apart? And how what do you kind of how does that work? I mean, obviously, you don't expect you to give any tricks of the trade away, but, I mean, do you have to do a lot of custom kind of casing? And, you know, how does... Well, you get, you get your flight cases manufactured by the people in L.A., generally. And then I will just suffice it to say I make a couple trips to the hardware store, and I uh, spend some of my cash and do a couple things, and uh, I've had pretty good luck knock on something. So do you ship? Do you tend to ship the stuff with the drives in, or do you keep the data separate? I mean, how do you do that? Oh, I've had super good luck with uh, with the Glyph drives, <laughs> and I've had good luck with IMAX shipping in road cases. Oh, super okay. good luck. But that doesn't mean that I don't have nine copies of that stuff backed up. Sure. In in ten different places. So you know now the kind of the focus has sort of shifted from being able to kind of fix something on the fly and having the right kind of connectors and all the kind of jiggy bits and the special torch and all of that sort of thing, almost into an IT role where you have to manage and archive data sort of sensibly. I suppose that has become my role quite a bit, managing and archiving data quite sensibly, having multiple copies of the drum samples on multiple computers, multiple people in the crew, multiple sample backups in the format used by the machine, yeah. multiple hard drives in multiple locations. Are you, uh, in terms of kind of sample playback and what have you, uh, I mean, you've got the tools rig, which is good for some things, but are you finding people are using computers for actual live playing? Is the latency low enough just to be able to kind of trigger, trigger say, drum samples and keyboard samples, or do you still, still use hardware? Still using hardware. Still using hardware. Now, you know, I, th I think it's about time to try to, uh, do drum samples from native instrument software, but I haven't quite got to that yet. It's funny because I was doing a production rehearsal recently and a guy was just complaining because the latency was kind of really throwing him and he just couldn't yeah. apply his feel. I think that's probably the case with MIDI as well, but at least with MIDI you kinda, you, you're probably used to it. Well, that's why for a long time I've employed the Alesis DM Pros because at least then it's triggered straight into the sound generating source off of that PCM CIA card. That's pretty antiquated technology, and you have to have a machine that boots an OS 9 to dump that data through ancient Alesis software. But that's been a pretty reliable machine and pretty small latency. So what, you use that as a trigger to MIDI system? Not at all. We leave MIDI out of it. All oh, right. So just you just use the the sounds in it. Okay. No, we use custom PCM CIA cards. Burn the band samples onto them with OS nine software. Then it simply triggers inputting to the sound source. No MIDI. No going anywhere else. Oh, I see. Right. That's an interesting concept. So you you just take that old technology and use and but but burn your own samples. Wow. That's. Well, yeah, because I started doing that when that was the newest technology. Sure. Now it's really a it's a really a bummer that you've got an I think an eight megabyte limitation, and yeah. it, it takes dang forty minutes to dump the samples, and you can't replace one at a time. Oh, There's sorry. a lot of inconvenience about it, but uh, I oh. would probably do the same thing in my own personal touring rig still. Right, just because you know it works, it just doesn't break. Uh, yeah, it's been, yes, I made one mistake once 
uh, rushing too fast. There are multiple kinds of PCMCIA cards you can get. I made a mistake with a certain band, had ones that had a battery in them. Oh, after about four years, the batteries went and the samples went. Well, I was in too much of a rush with too many things on my plate in that job. Um, by the time I got the last batch for Nine Inch Nails, those things will last for a decade. I will do the yeah do the same thing myself. Even though I have a couple D drums I can play with, also I'm interested to work with my D drum threes because I think those had an unlimited sample number and an unlimited. You could put huge PCMCA cards in there, and those you can dump through SPDIF and all kinds of other options. I look forward to playing with those. Right. But again, that's even more antiquated technology. I'm not sure somebody would want to take that on the no, road. No, but it, it, I, it, it's an interesting kind of area this because you know we're computers promise so much and we're used to the whole deal in the in the studio but we're not quite you know people say yeah sure you can use them live and and it doesn't seem like anybody really is not not in terms of live playback as a sort of instrument source you know i mean people obviously do but it's you know the the kind of old school guys who know that the show must go on and you have to do the gig they're, they're not they're not there yet and it's just interesting that there's this kind of gap of expectation and actuality i think well and you know if i had a rig that had an imac in it you know that i had another imac right next to it and you know that i had a third imac in the box you know that i had a dm pro a second dm pro and mm. a third dm pro in the box sure a anticipating everything to go wrong I guess also it's down to how much budget you get, really, isn't it, in a lot of cases, because a lot of, I mean, because the actual setup for a tour, I mean, I don't think people realise it's very expensive, because you've got all these guys hanging around, you've got the band hanging around, you've got the crew hanging around, you've got the production space that you've got to work in, you know, this is all, and these, this is without anything coming in from the shows, and then when you That's say, right, I need, I need, you know, these specification computers for the band, but I need three of each because I want backups. It's a hard, it's a tough thing to, to sell. I mean, sometimes that must be quite a difficult play, way to fight your corner unless, you know, unless people just know that you're gonna get, they're going to give you what you need. Well, you have to stick in your corner. You've got to fight for what the artist wants you to deliver. You've got to deal with the management. And sometimes I just, I just harbor the cost of the stuff myself so that I can cover my gig. Well, at the end of the tour, well, that's my gear because I didn't want to argue with having to buy it. I just spent my money on it. I knew I would have it there. Because a lot of people are moving over to touring now as well, in terms of, you know, like you were saying, that touring's maybe not so much fun because it's become so much more of a commercial. It's not about getting the message out there so much. It's about selling records, or not even selling records, it's about making money on the night. So it's a lot more serious. It's a serious business. Instead of just, it used to be about doing your show, now it is about maximizing income and minimizing expenses. So, frankly, it's getting to be an unbearable amount of work and no recovery time. I mean, it's because it, it's stressful. I mean, you know, people, it's, it's fun, but it's also incredibly stressful for everybody, it's, particularly if everybody's working very hard. There's a whole bunch mm -hmm. of people who a lot of responsibility lies on. There's a lot of people with a lot of responsibility, and it's a very long work day. And maybe people can't identify with us having three months off, but can you identify with going to work every morning at nine and being done at four in the morning every day and doing that five, six days a week? I don't know if people get that. I think you're probably right. I mean, you know, there's this whole concept about playing, you know, playing by its very nature of the word. It doesn't sound like working, does it? But 
I think uh, I, I have this bee in my bonnet about it's particular. You know, I mean, crew as well. Crew work very hard. Artists work very hard, in, but in a different way. You know, the artist has to kind of maintain their focus to be able to kind of put the show on and get through all the other stuff that they have to do. I mean, that's. You know, if you're feeling a bit ill in the morning and you start to worry that maybe your voice is going, it's just like, wow, that's kind of scary stuff. It's, and you've got a gig at, I don't know, some sort of Super bowl size gig, then it's pretty scary. That's pretty scary. You can't just not turn up for work, can you? <laughs> well, if you're, a, if you're a crew guy and you get horrifically ill, you better be able to do your job while you're horrifically ill. Because yeah. you can't walk. There's no sick days. There's no walking away. In Nine Inch Nails, we didn't even have days off. What we got to term that was non-show days. There's not a show on this day, and you might have it off, but you never know what you might be asked to do. Yeah, and also there's all those kind of things that pile up. It's like, I need to order some new parts for the X, Y, or Z. I need to... Oh, yeah. especially guitar picks and drumsticks and guitar strings. Those guys always have to be mindful. And then you've got to be mindful of, well, you can't get them in... Bangkok, and we don't want to ship them to Australia. It's they got to think about a lot of things. Fortunately, I get my stuff built in LA, and I'm pretty solid. I buy my hard drives in LA. I don't have too many expendables. That are, that's mainly drum things and guitar things. Sure, yeah. Do you ship all the instruments around the world with you, or do when you get to a, say a different territory, say you're going from the US to Japan, and they're using a bunch of, say, Roland kit or Akai kit or whatever, does that get supplied by the local distributors? How does that sort of thing work? Does that, can that happen? In, in the recent years of what I've been doing with larger productions, um, fortunately, we generally ship everything because the rigs are so specific. Oh, like, you try to I mean, Alessandro Cortini's Nine Inch Nails keyboard rig, mm -hmm. and for that matter, Dizzy's keyboard rig in Guns N' Roses, how are you going to replace everything in there? Impossible in a rental deal. Yeah. And basically, you rent anything, it's always wrong, and half the time it's broken. So fortunately, we ship everything, and then management freaks out about how much the shipping costs. Um, but then the artists stay happy, and we continue to deliver the... Uh, the show at the level they expect. Sometimes people cut corners and they suddenly have a different set of wedges and a different set of power amps and a different PA. And sometimes that works and sometimes the artist is like, what happened to the PA that we had in America? Well, somebody tried to save a dollar and now it doesn't sound the same anymore. Yeah, I think that must be right. I mean, I suppose at least with the thing with kind of total recall and automation, you know, at least you've got, you, you can take kind of essentially half the show on a couple of memory sticks, you know, it's kind of, and that's True, really bad. True, but we were still shipping those consoles, I believe. Yeah, sure. But you could, you could have. But there's a lot of, I know there's a lot of uh, bands that play more like on Conan and on the night television shows that are doing gigs in L.A. and then New York and then London. There's a lot of more like just guitar bands that rent stuff, especially don't fly it from New York to London, rent a whole kit of gear, and hopefully have a day to deal with breaking it in to do a show in England. Sure. There, there's still a lot of smaller productions that do the rentals. When, but, then, but then again, smaller productions, there's a lot of bands that I work with that would just only tour America or you know, tour Germany for one week or only tour Europe and on that tour never go to America. Right. So they wouldn't have to deal with any shipping issues in that year.
I mean, that must be a nightmare. I mean, I worry about losing my luggage when I'm going to kind of, you know, when I'm going to the NAMM show or whatever, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to maybe be short of some tapes or whatever. I can't imagine what it must be like moving an entire show. Oh, uh, it's... That's absolutely terrifying. Just the... Well, and loading those shipping containers is maniacal. Uh, but, yeah, you make another point, too. When I get on a plane and it's my show, then I have everything in my carry-on luggage. Yeah. If it's my responsibility to do my music for my show, or when I was working with Nicole Blackman and we were doing shows throughout Europe, mm. her poetry and my backup soundscapes, or her spoken word and my backup soundscapes, I had every device in two carry-on bags. Yeah. And I had all my clothing in those two carry-on bags. Right. Uh, I didn't change very often, but I knew that you could do if, the show. if they lost all the luggage, I could do the show. Yeah, that's kind of the way we think about it. John, it's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you ever so much for jumping in, you know, with with such great spirit at such short notice. And, um, well, sure. Maybe we can talk to you again when I've had a bit more of a chance to prepare and come up with some really, really hot questions. <laughs> well, this was pretty good uh, questions, and I didn't have to give away too many secrets. And, uh, you know, I can't really do that. Not too many secrets. <laughs> no, well, I understand. I understand. Okay, well, thank you, Mr. John Van Eaton. Um, Thank you very much for joining us this week. All right. Thank you, Nick. Peace. Bye-bye. Okay, once again, I'd just like to say thank you very much to John Van Eaton for joining us uh, this week. Uh, I know he jumped in at very last notice. Uh, again, I apologise for the audio quality. We were sort of in a bit of a rush. It was all a bit last minute. But I hope you find the content interesting. And normal service will be resumed next week um, when we'll be back with Sonic Talk number 82. Thanks very much for listening. Sonic. States. Lots of calls.